It's good to see everyone here this morning, so we'll get started. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and supposedly we are going to finish 1 Thessalonians today. We, um, we announced at the start of the class that this was going to be 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and I still intend to keep that promise, <laughs> but we've taken a long time to get through the first part of that. So 1 Thessalonians. And we're in chapter 5, and let's pray together as we get started. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, all that we learn in it, and we ask that you would help us to apply the things that we learn as we see the instructions that Paul gave to the Thessalonians. We pray that you would help us to understand it um, as he wrote it, and then to apply it um, to our lives and to our church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in 1 Thessalonians 5, and beginning with verse 12, and we are allegedly going to finish up the chapter today. So, 1 Thessalonians 5, and starting with verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And with that, Paul concludes um, 1 Thessalonians. It's only taken us since early September to get here, but um, we are finally there. So let's, let's take a moment and look back at where we've been. So in Acts 17, Paul went to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. He had just come from Philippi where he had been imprisoned and then released and then took the road that still exists from Philippi on over to Thessalonica and started uh, preaching in the synagogue. He was in the synagogue for three weeks before they kicked him out. He He remained in Thessalonica for an indeterminate period of time, but not for very long, um, anywhere from a month to maybe up to six months, but not for very long. And after that period of time, uh, persecution arose and Paul was kicked out. And so this fledgling church on the edges of the mission field had been established. Um, They were probably an impoverished church and they were certainly a persecuted church and all brand new. And so uh, Paul had been um, forced out of the city under terms that he would not return. And so he went on to Berea, preached there for a while, 
Um, people, his opponents came from Thessalonica and got him kicked out of Berea. He went on to Athens and then ultimately to Corinth. During this time, he remained concerned about the condition of the Thessalonican church. They were persecuted. They were suffering. They were all brand new baby Christians, basically. And so he was concerned about their condition. And so he was so concerned that he says that he uh, left himself, uh, he was willing to be left alone in Athens to find out their state. And so he sent Timothy back. And then when Timothy brought his report, that was what caused Paul to write 1 Thessalonians. And so in, in the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians, the focus is on, I left suddenly, that was not my idea, and I want to make sure that you know that I still love you and that I think well of you. And so that's the, really the burden of the first three chapters. And that... Uh, concludes with chapter 3 when he talks about Timothy come, uh, being sent and then Timothy coming back and Timothy had a good report. The church is doing well. Um, they still think highly of you. The opponent's messages that you were some kind of charlatan there that was taking advantage of them, that's not taking root. They still um, have uh, fond thoughts of you and uh, the church is doing well. And so uh, Paul was relieved, even exhilarated at that. Um, and so he, the, the, that was the expression, really, of these first three chapters. But the church was doing well, but that didn't mean that they were without needs. And so, starting with chapter 4, he starts expressing some of the needs that Timothy had told him about. And so, at the beginning of chapter 4, he talks about the matter of sexual ethics and and what that was to be for the church. And then in the remainder of chapter 4, and what we studied in the first half of chapter 5, there were some concerns about, um, about the return of Christ. Some believers had died since Paul had left, and so did that mean that they were going to miss out on the return of Christ? What was going to happen with regard to the resurrection um, if believers had already died, this was an unexpected development. So they didn't understand it. And so Paul explained that. And then Paul, in the first part of chapter 5, says, I don't want you to be caught unaware like um, unbelievers will be caught unaware at the, at the day of the Lord. And so that's the burden of the first part of chapter 5. And so... That's kind of the outline of everything that we've looked at so far. Paul first expressing his love for the church, expressing his gladness that he knows that that love is returned, and then beginning to deal with um, some specific concerns that Timothy had told him about. In the passage that we just read, we see Paul giving very quick um, um, uh, instructions to the church as he prepares to close out the letter. So before we get into that, I did want to go back to one thought from last week. And we didn't really cover the first part of chapter 5 um, all that well just because there's so much to talk about. And we got into the discussion of millennial views and, and all of that. Um, but I, I really, I still want to move on because there still is Second Thessalonians in front of us. So... Um, we have to hope there are no snow days in December. We'll never get anything done. But nonetheless, um, I did want to go back to one thought. And I, I was asked a question after class, and I thought it was a good one. So I don't want to get stuck on this, but I do want to mention it. And that's this. 
does it make any difference? So, um, you know, when we talk about, you know, the uh, different kinds of premillennialism and postmillennialism and amillennialism, is there any value in ferreting all that out and, and figuring out what we believe? And, I, you know, I, I'm sure that we can say, you know, is it as important to understand the, what you believe about the millennium? Is it as important as understanding the gospel or uh, the trinity or um, our justification by faith? Um, probably not. It's not of that high order. But nonetheless, there's still, I think, tremendous value in studying scripture and figuring out our understanding of um, of uh, last things and, and millennialism in particular. And let me try to give a couple of examples, um, some positive and some negative. So on the positive side, even though the, the millennium is only mentioned explicitly in one place in the Bible, Revelation 20, it, it, your understanding of that impacts our understanding of, of a lot of other places in Scripture. And so a lot of Old Testament prophecies about the day of the Lord or about a future golden age, if you will, if you are a, a post-millennialist versus a premillennialist versus an amillennialist, your understanding of those passages is going to be very different. And so it helps with our reading of many Old Testament passages. It helps with our reading of many New Testament passages as well. So, for example, uh, the, the most obvious example is the Olivet Discourse. And so how you understand Matthew chapter 24 is going to be impacted by your understanding of the return of Christ and what his millennial um, reign means. Um, let me give a more basic um, example. Our understanding of the kingdom of God is deeply impacted by how we understand uh, the millennial reign of Christ. And so when we pray um, the Lord's Prayer, the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, if you want to walk through your catechism, the second petition of the Lord's Prayer is, Thy kingdom come. What does that mean? Well, depending on your millennial view, it could mean different things. If you're a premillennialist, then... Jesus isn't reigning yet, that's awaiting his return. And when he sets up his throne in Jerusalem, he's going to reign someday in the future. If you're a post-millennialist, then at some uncertain point during the present age, he's reigning um, through the uh, acceptance of the gospel and uh, through the extension of the blessings of common grace and so forth. And so that reign may be in the present. Um, from the perspective of our confession, um, and, and some premillennialists and some postmillennialists can get all this worked out, but from the perspective of our um, confession, the kingdom is both present and future. It's both already and not yet. And so, um, and so we, when we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying for some things that are happening now in our lives and in our church. And we're also praying with regard to Christ coming again. 
So we're praying. Um, and I should have brought in the words of our larger catechism, which kind of lay that out really, really nicely. But we're praying for something that's both already and not yet here. And so um, I, the, the way that we understand the millennium really helps bring beauty and value to that. And so, um, and, and because it affects our understanding of the kingdom, it also affects our understanding of the work of the church. And so um, we could get into a lot of practical implications there. Let me mention also that bad forms of millennial belief lead people in bad directions. And let me just give one example of that. A few years ago, um, I was talking with a coworker just casually, and I don't even remember how it came up. Um, she was about the same age as me, and it may have been I said something about, you know, we're at the age where we have to start thinking about saving for retirement. And she said, oh, I don't save for retirement. And I said, really, why? And she said, well, the Lord's coming back, and I have faith that he's returning. There's no need for me to save. Um, and, you know, perhaps that's a rather extreme point of view, although in terms of personality and so forth, she didn't come across as an extremist until she said that. But there's an example of somebody's millennial views that unless Christ does actually return in the next few years, and he could, but unless he does, that's going to have a severely negative impact on her life. And so you see people that are actually harmed um, by their theology. Um, and so it's, uh, from that standpoint, it's important that we have good theology and, and we find the harm in having uh, bad theology. So anyway... Um, for all of the kinds of reasons that I've described, and I could go on and on, I do think that there's practical value in trying to understand um, these sorts of things. I will pause, hoping nobody has any questions, and then we'll move on. <laughs> Seriously, if you want to, yeah. Uh, as someone who knows next to nothing about any of this, is there a book or person you would recommend, like, this is a good basic outline? Yeah, a couple, and I had a couple of books here last week, um, and I unfortunately don't have them today, but there's one book um, that's called Four Views of the Millennium. The editor's name is Klaus, C-L-O-U-S-E, and it's an older book. I think it was written in the 70s or early 80s, but you can still find it on Amazon um, or wherever you like to buy books. Um, but um, Four Views of the Millennium, and the nice thing about that is it has um, authors that do articles representing all the different positions, and then they all react to one another, and so it's, um, it's very fair from that perspective that it allows each of the views to, to present themselves. Um, so, um, so that's one I would recommend. The other that I recommended last week, and will again today, is by Kim Riddlebarker. Um, those of you that are fans of the White Horse Inn know the name of Kim Riddlebarker. Um, he has written a book, and this one puts my cards on the table, but um, the book is entitled um, The Case for Amillennialism. And um, Riddlebarker is very good because, uh, like many of us, Riddlebarker grew up a premillennial dispensationalist. And so he understands uh, that view very well, as well as the others. And so he's able to, um, 
to lay out both uh, what he used to believe um, and, and what he um, understands now. So uh, it's a very good book as well. So those are the two that, that I would recommend. Um, Riddle Barger's an interesting character. He's been a Reformed pastor for many years now, but he, he grew up on the edge of um, Disney World. And his family owned a bookstore, uh, not Berry Farms or whatever, uh, a Christian bookstore there. Um, so um, he talks about his interactions with the people that sold books when he was a kid. And that ultimately is what resulted in his um, change of views. An old man Zonderbin and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Just reform guy. Yeah. So an interesting. Other questions or thoughts? I'll recommend a book. Okay. Of course, Julie has first dibs on it. It's called uh, The End Times Made Simple. Okay. And I looked around for one that is an easily digestible presentation of the amillennial view. And it's consistent with Riddle Barters. It's an idealist approach to amillennialism. And it's written by Reformed Baptist pastor Sam Walter. Oh, okay. I know that. Yeah. So, and a case for amillennialism. Check that out. A case for amillennialism is also in the library. <laughs> yes, it is. Okay. And my apologies to, for all the post-millennialists here that want your views uh, presented, or anybody else. Okay, now we finally get to our text. It only took 20 minutes. Okay, so Paul in um, 1 Thessalonians 5 then um, gives a series of instructions. And there are really four groups of people that are in mind here. The first are instructions with regard to their leaders, and then he gives some instructions regarding the weak, and then some instructions regarding what I'm calling their heavenward look, and then finally some instructions regarding the work of the Spirit. So um, the passage can be divided in that way. So first of all, let's look at um, his instructions concerning their leaders. Verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So Paul here is instructing them when he talks about those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. He's basically talking about their elders. Um, and there are some people that say, well, at this early point in church history, they couldn't have had elders and all that. But actually, in the book of Acts, talking about Paul's missionary journeys, it talks about the missionaries establishing officers in the church. And in Acts 15, the church at Antioch sent elders to Jerusalem um, to deal with the questions there regarding um, circumcision. And so, and also... Uh, many of these believers that came out of the synagogue, they would have been used to the um, organization of synagogue worship. And so the establishing church officers would have been um, something they would have thought of naturally. And so um, this was early in church history. And so Paul is telling them uh, to respect those that he describes as laboring among you and over you in the Lord and that admonish you. Now think about these elders. It's very different from the way we think about elders now in that in a church that's in a center of an area of the world where we Christianity has been established and reformed churches have been established for a long, long time. 
um, we take seriously the biblical injunction that we not ordain a novice. You know, somebody that's a brand new Christian, somebody that we don't know well, that's new to the church. Um, These are not the sorts of folks that we would ordain. The Thessalonican church was on the edge of the mission field. And sometimes you have to make do. Um, there, There are pragmatic realities. It was either ordain those that seemed most capable of leadership there or not have any officers for the church. And, you know, in, in, in our modern world, if you have a brand new church, in, in not just our modern world, but in this part of the world, if you have a brand new church, such as, you know, we start, we help start the church in Waco. We have, our, our session has responsibility for that. But you see, there can be a relationship there. So until they have their own officers, we supply the officers for that church. And so presbyteries work to do that. Thessalonica was out on the very edge of the mission field at a point in time when communications, even for a port city, are not as easy as they are now. And so um, this was one of Paul's burdens, one of his concerns, that the church um, had difficulties. They were persecuted. They had new Christians that had a lot they needed to understand. And so they, um, they, um, they, um, they had officers there. They had elders. But he was concerned. And he was concerned that the work was hard. Actually, the word for labor there is the same word that he used in chapter 1 where he talks about a labor, the, their labor of love. And the idea is of laboring until you're weary. And so these were folks that were working hard. The, the work of being an elder is hard work. It's spiritually and emotionally demanding. And so one of the things that Paul seems to be saying to the church here is, with your young elders, young in the faith, um, respect them. <laughs> Give them some slack. Um, they are probably going to make some mistakes. And so um, the church needed to be aware. They needed to be thankful for those that, were, that had taken on these positions. And church and elders needed together to grow in the Lord. Um, let me try to give a modern application. I have seen um, young ministers just eaten alive by uh, churches that um, you know saw their young ministers make mistakes and instead of praying for them, instead of coming alongside them and trying to help them, I'm talking about young guys just out of seminary, they just ate them up and ruined their future for ministry. Um, did the ministers make mistakes? Yep. Were the people they were ministering to very forgiving of their mistakes? Nope. And the results were... Um, catastrophic for the young family Um, so these sorts of things can happen and so whether we're talking about ministers whether we're talking about elders whether we are talking about those that are as young in the Lord as these were here um, when we um, believe that our leaders have made mistakes um, we instead of uh, you know going on Facebook and criticizing them um, we should you used to it was phone calls now it's social media right 
Um, but instead of, uh, instead of criticizing, um, we should uh, pray for them. If necessary, we should go talk with them and let them know that we think that they uh, made a mistake and that we're praying for them. Uh, maybe we will learn that no, he didn't make a mistake. I, was, I understood it wrong. But uh, nonetheless, um, they were to respect their, um, those that labor among them so they're described as those that labor among them. Second, they are described as those that, um, that are over you in the Lord. This is a, an unpopular way nowadays of speaking of church leadership. Um, the idea of a churchly authority that we submit to. All of us that have taken membership vows, um, we do... Um, we do take uh, vows of submission to um, the leadership of the church. Now, that doesn't mean mindless submission. And the same thing um, that's said later about prophecy could be said also here, um, that they are not to despise prophecies, but they are to test everything. And so it's not as though um, Paul is saying that we are submitting like to some sort of uh, dictatorship. Um, but there is nonetheless an authority of church leaders um, that um, all of us that are not officers, including myself, I'm not an officer of this church, I just teach this class, um, but um, uh, we have two elders in the room, Wayne and uh, Terry, and if they came to me and they said, you know, really, Harry, you shouldn't have said that, um, I would need to pay attention to that and, and listen to their reasons, and if I disagreed, we could talk about it, but ultimately... Um, as a member here that's been given an important task to do, I'm, I'm um, responsible uh, to the session. And so um, those things um, are things that we should take seriously. Um, across much of the evangelical world now, um, there's this attempt to make um, church leadership um, sort of a CEO style leader um, and that we're all there kind of voluntarily. And so the CEO is selling the product, but ultimately we are there voluntarily to buy the product that they're selling. Um, that's really not a biblical understanding of the church. Um, and so the, the, our leaders are uh, shepherds and um, and, and we, um, we are a part of that body, and, and there is a, a submissiveness that we all um, should have with regard to our church leadership. Again, I'm not uh, talking about somebody that's a dictatorial leader or that sort of thing. Um, and if somebody gets a big head, whether a young minister or anybody else, and says, I'm the leader here, um, run as fast as you can. Um, but um, because actually the truth of the matter is that um, when we talk about the authority of our leaders, that probably should scare, uh, scare our leaders to death that under the Lord they have that kind of ministerial, ministerial authority. And, and by the way, the authority is ministerial versus magisterial. So they are ministers of Christ. They can't go beyond what Christ tells them that they can do. They're not magistrates. They're not kings that are, that are lording it over uh, the flock. Um, so there is this kind of submissiveness um, that, um, 
that is within the church. They, they are the ones that are over us. In uh, Hebrews chapter um, 13, we have the same thought. Remember, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And so um, the same thought uh, from uh, Hebrews 13. And then third, they're described as the one that, ones that admonish you. Um, admonish may sound like a harsh word. It's actually gentle. And so elsewhere, Paul speaks of, uh, I think in 1 Corinthians, of having admonished them, not having shamed them. Um, but there is the need for correction, both with regard to belief and uh, behavior. And so that's a responsibility um, of our leaders. Um, sometimes that may not feel very good. We prefer when our pastor talks about somebody else's sins and not mine. Um, you know, if he's talking about mine, then he quit preaching and started meddling. Um, but, um, but actually, we are to be thankful um, when somebody, uh, so to speak, gets into our grill a little bit and reminds us of attitudes and behaviors that are sinful. Um, we should desire that. I, it's, um, I, uh, again... I've known of congregations that loved red meat preaching, is what the way I spoke of it. And that usually meant that, you know, we're not talking about somebody's sins that are out there. I mean, in, not talking about somebody that's in here. We're talking about the sins of people out there. And so, you know, it, it's... Um, but actually, um, we ought to desire, actually, that uh, the Word of God be preached frankly in a way that addresses my attitudes and behaviors because I, you know, it's, I'm the one that needs to be corrected. I, I used to hate it standing at the door at the edge of church and people would stop by, walk by and they'd say, that was a really good sermon. I wish Joe was here to hear that. And I go, oh, we're not supposed to think that way. The point is not that I wish Joe was here. It's, I was glad, I'm glad I was here because I needed to hear that. I needed to be uh, corrected or encouraged or or whatnot, and so um, our leaders will admonish us at times. And if even if it's un- uncomfortable, we are to respect those that um, admonish us and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And the the, the, the final phrase of verse thirteen, some want to some commentators want to attach that to what follows, but I really think that, that it belongs with our respect for our leaders. Because Paul here adds, be at peace among yourselves. And that's so valuable for church leaders if um, folks in the church, uh, understanding what we share in common in Christ, if we work to be at peace with one another. Um, I'll say this not as um, not with regard to church leader, leadership, but um, as a manager where I work, you know, most of the, I've had good employees that have worked for me. There's one thing that just wears me out emotionally. When two, when somebody comes into the office and says that they're not getting along with somebody else there, and it's just drama. <laughs> it doesn't affect the work. It's just too, it's just a personality conflict with people that get it's just exhausting because you know that if you don't 
get control over it that it can blow up your department or it can actually get in the way of doing work that needs to be done. Um, it's just exhausting. And um, our church leaders can go through that too. It's important um, that, um, that we get along. I, I grew up in churches um, you know, when I was a teenager and so forth that just were cauldrons of conflict. And, um, and, and it was, it was um, pretty awful. I'm thankful my faith survived it. Um, but, um, you know, these kinds of things are exhausting for church leaders. And so uh, we should endeavor to be at peace with one another because it is a way of showing respect um, for our leaders. Um, so that's um, our obligations with regard to our leaders. Thoughts or questions about that? The second um, area that he talks about is uh, concerning one another. Look at verses 14. And we urge you, brothers... Um, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. See that no one uh, repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now notice the different kinds of people and the different types of verbs um, that he uses um, with regard to these different groups. So admonish the idle. There were some moochers in the church that were taking advantage of the church's generosity. And so he says, admonish them, tell them to get going, that this is not right. On the other hand, he says, encourage the faint-hearted. So there were some that maybe they looked just like the idol, but they were really discouraged. And they needed to be lifted up. So when we think about these different groups and the way Paul speaks to what they are to do in response to them, there's an obligation to understand both scriptural, scripture and the moral responsibility that we all have, but also to understand the people that are a part of our congregation. Um, so with regard to those that are idle and faint-hearted, it's important that we have a scriptural obligation to do our part, to work with our own hands, not to take advantage of other people's generosity. Those are moral obligations of all of us. But if we see somebody that's not doing that, we have to understand, we, we, we do need to say to them, you're not where you need to be. But in doing that, do we kind of, do we admonish them? Do we say, you need to get going. Sometimes that's the right message, right? Or do we need to say, um, you know, what's happening here? Um, things going on in your life that, you know, you don't know how to keep going. Um, and so, um, you know, the, you lost a spouse. I understand that you, you're going through a lot. Um, how can I help? Um, and so different people may be um, having the same moral failure. I mean, different people may have similar moral failures um, with regard to work or being faint-hearted or whatnot, but the reasons that they are struggling may be very different, and so it's important that we know both Scripture and one another so that the right medicine 
can be uh, applied to the malady that we are, are seeing. Um, and so um, it's important here th- to see that Paul says, you know, when, when you see people that are um, faltering or hurting in the church, don't abandon them. Um, seek to um, draw them back um, to faithfulness. But while you're doing that, it's important to understand both scripture. You know, we can't say to people, no, you you really don't have any responsibility. Don't worry about it. Um, So we have to understand scripture and what it requires. But we also have to understand the people that are sitting in the chairs next to us um, so that we are um, helping them in the best way possible as well. Um, Sometimes um, there are Christians that mean well and they think that... um, that loving somebody means denying that they have an obligation, and that's not true. So they don't address the, the sickness correctly. There are others that address the sickness correctly, but they are hard on people they should be encouraging to, or maybe they are um, soft on people that they should give a kick in the pants to. And so it's important that we, um, that we understand both what Scripture requires and also the folks uh, that we're ministering to and, and why and how they are, are failing to meet their um, obligations as believers. Thoughts about that? So that's um, what he had to say about our obligation um, obligations to one another. This, this requires knowledge and sensitivity on the part of a congregation of one another. Um, The third section of these um, instructions is what I'm calling the heavenward look. Look at verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so there are three things that he says that they are to do all the time. They are to rejoice always, they are to pray without ceasing, and they are to give thanks in all circumstances. Now, Paul here is not contradicting what he said in chapter 4, uh, which we spent a fair amount of time talking about when he told them not to grieve like those who have no hope. And so he didn't say that they were to uh, stop grieving. He just said, don't grieve like hopeless people grieve, because we're not hopeless as Christians. And so the, it's sometimes... We can, um, and, and some Christians do, create this either-or category. Well, you have to stop grieving because we're supposed to rejoice in the Lord. Um, actually, we can do both. And so, um, because we have Christ and because we have hope, we can rejoice always. We can um, pray. Uh, we can give thanks in all circumstances. Um, we can uh, pray without ceasing. These are things that we can continue to do all the time, even while we grieve um, over um, circumstances. The, the ancient world was much more harsh than sometimes I think that we realize. And of course, conditions were harsh for them but because of the persecution. But sometimes I think that we, we, um, we kind of... Um, think of the ancient world as just a different version of our own and we fail to realize the economic hardships that nearly everybody experienced 
So I read a, a book, it was not a Christian book at all, it was uh, by a secular economist that um, talked about up until around uh, 1700 or so, as I recall, worldwide, think about this for a second, worldwide, the average income, uh, the average domestic product of everybody uh, uh, was about $3 a day worldwide. And that's for all of history. It, basically, it went, went up a little bit at different times, but it would always kind of return to the mean. Um, and this was true for all of recorded history up until about 1700. So basically, for most of human history, the whole global economy was like Bangladesh now. Think about that. So the, the and, and I think during periods of peace during the Roman Empire, that may have gone up some, but again, but, and, and realized that up until after 1700, there was essentially no, no middle class. And so there were a relatively small number of uh, wealthy, and then everybody else was poor. And so your average income in almost current dollars, are the way we think about dollars now, three bucks a day, $1,000 a year, a little more than that. That's the way they lived. That was all they knew. And that was hard. So these were folks that were persecuted. They were poor. Um, and so it's to f- folks um, in those conditions that Paul says, um, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, and rejoice always. In all of their poverty, they had the gospel. They had forgiveness. They had eternal life. They had certainty regarding their future resurrection. And because of those hopes, um, um, they could rejoice even in the midst of hardship. They knew that this life is not all there is. And so even in the midst of deep hardship, um, there was hope. And so that is what made these things valuable. Um, before we close, I do want to get to the first of uh, the... It, it's almost like there's two benedictions, but it takes the form of a prayer. And I don't have time to really talk about this as I should, but we will at least mention it. Uh, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Notice that we're dependent upon God for our sanctification. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This verse has created no end of controversy because it, div- it divides two things that normally are thought of as one. And so um, when I was growing up, I was taught what we would call the trichotomist view of man. That's the idea that we're made up of three parts, body and soul and spirit. Um, that, in spite of this verse, and we'll talk for a moment about this verse, that is nowhere taught in Scripture. Um, Scripture teaches that we are composed of two parts, material and immaterial, body and soul, and that soul and spirit are the same thing. That's the immaterial part um, of uh, who we are as human beings. So... Why here does Paul um, 
say it this way, your whole spirit and soul and body. It's really for purposes of emphasis. He's saying your whole being, all of you. And let me draw a similar example from the, from the words of Jesus. When he said that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. I don't think anybody says that Jesus was claiming that we're made up of four parts. But rather he said it that way for emphasis. You are to love the Lord your God with your whole being. And so he, he uh, spoke of it in four ways. And so here, um, Paul is not saying that the soul is something different from the spirit and that we're made up of three things. Um, but rather, um, he's saying, uh, but rather this is not inconsistent with what is said elsewhere in Scripture, that, um, that um, and, and going all the way back from Genesis 2, uh, where uh, mankind is a body and a soul, uh, we're two parts. Um, and Paul emphasizes um, this in other places where he speaks of um, body and soul. If you want to write down some Scriptures, uh, you can look at Colossians 2.5, Ephesians 2.3, um, 1 Corinthians 7.34, and there are others as well, well where Paul just speaks of body and soul. He doesn't uh, um, speak of us as though we are um, three parts. Um, where that makes a difference is those that divide us into three um, tend to come to some strange views regarding our sanctification so that um, you know it's our spirit that believes and that's different from our... Um, intellect uh, and our our psychological being and so um, those that take the the three um, the three um, part view of man tend to start coming to some odd views of um, of our sanctification and and what um, that means for the Christian life so um, I wish I had time to get into all that but I don't Wayne. no just that uh, just reminded me uh, Gnosticism uses that this idea that the spirit is what needs to be released, the, the conscience versus the unconscious, and yada, yada, yada. And that's very true, um, that it does tend toward Gnosticism. And it's so important here, and, and um, that to really, a, a lot of folks, their view of spirituality is to escape this body. That, you know, if my spirit can be lifted to some higher plane. Um, and um, that's certainly. Um, uh, an inclination of Eastern uh, mysticism, but it gets into the church as well. If you look into um, Catholic my mystical traditions, as well as the way uh, that some Protestant um, spiritualities are developed, um, this idea that I'm supposed to escape the body. The Christian ideal is not to escape the body. Um, I've got a funny story that I don't tend to tell. But um, at one time I was preaching about this and I said something about the idea that we could somehow escape our um, our bodies and just lit, raise to higher power and I was about to say but and right as I was in between the wife of one of our elders said amen then <laughs> I didn't know what to do um, but um, uh, it was an awkward moment but um, so anyway um, Realize that Paul has just finished in chapter 4 talking about the resurrection of the body. The ideal is not that the soul escapes the body and rises to a higher spiritual plane. 
the, the Christian ideal is that body and soul are both redeemed and glorified and united together for all eternity. And so escape from the body is not the Christian ideal. Actually, um, when we die and our souls go to heaven, we're waiting. I mean, we're already with Jesus, but we're waiting for our ultimate destiny, which is to be reunited with our glorified body, and that's um, for all eternity. So that's uh, really important. I should close. I'm going over. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these instructions. We pray that um, you would help us to apply them to our own lives. Um, Help us to uh, be submissive to our leaders. Help our leaders to be wise. Um, Help us all to um, show care um, as we minister to one another within your body. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.